Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, and today's guest is Ian McFarland. Ian is a filmmaker. He's also in Blood for Blood, but we're here to talk about him as a filmmaker, specifically his movie, The Godfathers for Hardcore, which documents Agnostic Front. As you probably know, they're the band that put New York hardcore on the map. They really, I would say, laid the template for what we think of as hardcore today, like sonically and culturally. Like I think you can trace almost all of that back to Agnostic Front in one form or another. And he did an amazing job of telling that story in Godfathers of Hardcore. The movie's great. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's available now on bridge9.com. So give that a look if you haven't. But what we talked about in this episode is how that movie came to be. Cause he's been working on this for a very long time. As you can imagine, like telling a story of this magnitude is not easy. It's not cheap. He had to go through a lot of shit to get there and we get into all of that. So like, if you have ever wondered, I have an idea for a movie. What would it take to actually make that happen? You're going to find out in this conversation, we talked about how he got the idea for the movie, what he had to do to make it happen like financially and logistically. We get into, unfortunately, some really kind of nasty legal shit that happened to him. To make a long story short, he got royally fucked by his distributor along with thousands of other filmmakers. And unfortunately, he's still kind of in the middle of figuring out what to do with that. So we get into all of that in this podcast, the ups and downs of being an independent filmmaker. And whether you are a filmmaker or some other kind of creator, I think there's a lot of stuff that you're gonna be able to take away from this show and apply to what you're doing. So thanks again to Ian for being on and let's get into it. Welcome Ian to the show. Thank you so much for getting in touch. I'm really excited about this. Uh, Ian is the director. Well, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself and maybe tell your 90 second life story in a minute here. But uh, the reason that we are speaking today is because of the film you directed, Godfathers of Hardcore, which I saw a couple months ago when it came out on Amazon Prime, I think. Awesome film about Agnostic Front, who are certainly the Godfathers of Hardcore. They deserve that title. Um, I guess, what can you tell us again? Uh, tell us, tell us about yourself. Anything I missed there? You know, what do we need to know about you in 90 seconds or less? Well, you put me on the spot. Um, the lightning round. <laughs> well, um, you got my name right. And I'm a filmmaker. I, uh, I grew up in the hardcore punk rock scene, um, in Boston and new England. Um, I've played in hardcore bands. Uh, the band I've been in pretty much, my, most of my life, uh, has been called blood for blood from Boston done a lot of music videos. I've done from bands like Killswitch Gage to Meshuga to Fear Factory and um, done a lot of work with uh, Agnostic Front. Um, I also do a lot of commercials and I own a uh, small post-production studio in Boston. So I stay pretty busy between commercials and uh, commercial work, editing work, post-production work, and promoting my movie and trying to get another one off the ground. 
did I make the 90 seconds? <laughs> I, I think so. Okay. I've seen your name around lots of times over the years just because we probably have about 9 million of the same friends. But I, I'm not actually, I, I am embarrassed to say that I'm not super familiar with your work. When did you start doing film and video and you know that sort of thing? When did you start doing that? And what was like the first thing that really put you on the map you know, in the sense of who you are now? Well, I don't know if it was any one particular thing that put me on the map. I think it was a natural progression of things that I've done. Um, and it all was, everything I've done has been in years past is, especially when I started out was based on connections and friends that I had, um, within the music scene. And I started out by, um, when I got into doing production, I decided that I wanted to, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I, I always loved making small videos when I was a kid, um, with like a VHS camera that my grandfather and grandmother bought. Um, and dubbing VHS tapes back and forth and doing like analog edits. Um, and when I was about 21, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife. We, uh, we started talking about, you know, me getting a computer. <laughs> I had never had a computer in my life. And, uh, we uh, got a computer and, and it was an Apple, uh, it was a Mac, uh, I think it was a G3, um, really old school. And I started reading any book I could on, um, the technical aspects of editing in particular because I wanted to be able to self-sufficient and tell my own stories. And then I started doing uh, music videos. Once I got to a point where I felt like I knew what I was doing even a little bit, um, I went to my friends where I could screw up and uh, not have any worry of any big labels or anybody breathing down my neck because I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I started doing it. And the first one I did was a band called Terror. Uh, it was in 2001. It was for the song Push It Away. And that was the first one I ever did. I remember that video. Yeah, it was the first one I did. And then after that, uh, I started doing a lot of music videos, um, like for the Unseen and then Sick of It All and Agnostic Front. And um, But the first music video, I have to say, that really kind of like established me in at least the heavy music world, Headbangers Ball was going at the time, was a music video uh, by a band called Mashuga, and the video was uh, Bleed. And it was one of the first uh, narrative uh, music videos to go on um, at least Headbangers Ball, I know of. Uh, I know that. What an iconic song, too. Yeah. And at the time, we didn't know what it would be like, but I remember there's a couple behind the scenes out there you can search on, on Vimeo, I think, and YouTube. Um, but that project was extremely hard, and uh, we didn't know what we were We knew what we were doing, but we didn't have really much money to work with it, and we had to come up with ways of doing cool things at no budget. And it was uh, it was quite an adventure. And that's kind of kind of started my, my career um, in, in the music uh, content world, I think. Funny that content is a word now, right? I know, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I make content. Yeah. yeah, I'm a content creator. I'm a video content creator, I guess. That's like the buzzword, right? Well, there's a few things you said there. Before we kind of talk about uh, about the film, there's a few things there that I wanted to kind of uh, pull out because they're themes that come up a lot in my videos and on the show. The first one is the idea of the music scene as your professional network which is a thing I never, you know, going to shows 20, 25 years ago, never crossed my mind that that might be a thing, but it totally was for me. And, you know, I'm hearing that that was the case for you too. I mean, that's the, the, con the coming out of the gate doing a video for terror is a pretty great start. And I'm guessing that's because you knew somebody in the band from back in the day. I did. Yeah. We took them on one of their first tours in my band. Um, we took them out for like a week, I think in the South. And I just, I knew the guys, but I didn't really know the band's music. They were so new. I just heard their demo, and I thought it was great. And uh, we took them out for a week, and that's how that relationship started. But they weren't really anything at that point. They were just kind of 
people were starting to get to know them. Scott from Slugfest's new band. Yeah, exactly. I think it was Despair. He had been in Despair, and then it was Terror. I think that was the progression, right? Slugfest, Despair, and then... And then Buried Alive. And then Buried Alive. That's right. Sorry. Buried Alive, and then Terror. Yeah. He's a good dude. He t- Scott and I, we just talked the other day. We've been friends for now. Jesus, that's like 20 plus years. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize that. It's terrifying. It's ter- so how many other times in your career have you found a professional connection through the music world? I mean, aside from oh. obviously knowing somebody in a band and then doing the video, there's all these people behind the scenes that are from hardcore. That's the thing that I think is super interesting. You know, that that's one of the things I like about what you do and what you're, you're, the way that you, know, you think is because you think a lot of the ways that I do. And I, I think first and foremost, like what you said a minute ago about, you know, making a career or whatnot in, in hardcore punk rock scene or whatnot, it's very taboo in a lot of ways. You're you're not, you're not supposed to make money from the scene. You know what I mean? It's like, but at the same time, I kind of feel like as long as you do it with respect, it's, it's okay. But to be honest with you, you're not, nobody's going to be making a lot of money period from the hardcore scene or punk rock scene. Um, at least the, the real one, in my opinion, um, the commercial one. Yes. But, you know, I, I think that I found, to, to finish a little bit further, what you were, you were asking was, you know, I've run into so many people um, that you never in a million years would have thought were hardcore kids when they were younger. Um, I mean, I'm talking like giant studio executives that I've lit recently in the past, like probably eight months, there's a couple guys, I'm not going to name their names, but I'll say that, you know, recently a major Hollywood studio, a guy reached out to me because he saw, you know, my film and he was just so excited because he said it was like the first time he had seen, um, you know, anything of like, you know, the real hardcore scene broadcast on a premium channel. And I think what the film did in me doing it is uh, I met, I've met a lot of people that are in, you know, higher positions of power in the entertainment world that grew up on the idea of punk rock and hardcore and all the morals and ethics that you get from it, you know, and, and the ideas. And they've, I, I personally think that it's a great catalyst for people that, um, you know, are self-driven and want to succeed. You learn a lot from just dealing with people within the scene because it's a lot of it's based on, you know, doing the right thing and not screwing people over. So I think it's a great, great basis for business you know, moving on, you know, throughout your life, no matter what you do. Well, yeah. And that's kind of the second thing I wanted to pick at is you said that the start of all this was getting that G3 back in the day. And for those who don't remember the G3, that was probably what, around 99, 98, something like that. That was sort of the beginning of when desktop video was relatively affordable and viable. I mean, you could do it before, but it was really expensive and it sucked. And the G3, like, correct me if, if you disagree with anything here, but to me, the G3 was like really when it first was a thing that a normal person might be able to do. Yeah, it was like G3, and, G4. Yeah, that's when it kind of really kicked yeah. off. And, you know, you saw that that was a thing. And just the same as when you're in a band and you're like, well, nobody wants to put our record out. Uh, So I guess we'll figure out how to do it ourselves, even though none of us really know how to do this. We're just going to jump in and do it. To me, that's like the most important part of hardcore and punk and stuff is just being stupid enough, I guess, to jump in with both feet, something you don't understand, but having faith that you'll figure it out along the way. Is that a thing that you feel like you got from the scene? Yes, 100 percent. It's kind of like a stage dive. You hope that, you know, you're going to have people to help support you <laughs> so you don't fall, you know, and you don't see a lot of people fall, you know, it's it stage diving. And I think it's the same thing with, 
you know, hardcore and punk rock and, and, and translating to like, you know, in different places, in different people's career. Um, I, 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 I agree. Yeah. I think it's, it, there's, there's a lot you can get from it. And I think there's a, a lot that you can, you can learn from it to better yourself in a lot of different ways. Well, let's switch gears to the movie itself, because I'm, I'm really interested to hear the story of how that came together and some of the things that you've learned from that, uh, whether you know whether you want to make a feature film or not, because that's a thing that probably not that many people you know are actually seriously considering. But I'm sure that the stuff that you went through in this film is something that people could apply to any kind of creative project. I guess the first question I would have is like, you know, that is a big project, especially to like tackle something with such a like iconic band like AF where it's like you really got to make sure you do this one right. Um, what kind of led you to decide to take this project on? That's a really good question. <laughs> it's simple as it's <laughs> like, I don't know. I never thought well, about no, it. No, no. I mean, it's, it's very loaded, the answer. Um, and I'll try to not make it so loaded, but. Well, feel free to. I mean, if anything I said there doesn't sound right. No, no, it does. No, it does. Um, there's because it, it was kind of like a, a, a progression, like. I mean, the reason why I wanted to do it is is there's many reasons, but I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. Is one, um, we'll just talk about the reason why in the first place, not technical or anything like that, or my career. The reason I wanted to do it is because um, I really saw a really unique relationship and story between Roger and Vinny. It wasn't like anybody else. There's nobody else I ha I know or I've met that are like the two of them, and. In my eyes, I thought that it was more interesting to highlight that because if you highlighted that and learned and, and the audience understood about that, then you by default would understand what the band is and what the band's about. And you wouldn't have to do this discography film, which I despise. I mean, yes, exactly. You know That's why I was initially resistant to watch the movie mm -hmm. because I fucking hate those. I hate them, man. I, I, I hate like that stuff. Let me actually, let me take it back. Some of them are very good. There's a few that I, I mean, just because I'm a fan of the band, but I wanted to tell a bigger story. And not only that, I didn't want the film only to have, you know, an audience of the music scene and people that are into, you know, fringe music and, and hardcore underground music or hardcore punk rock. I wanted to show it to the world in a, in a and I use this word sometimes, but it's really the only word I can come up with a palatable way because hardcore, especially agnostic front is not for the easy listening. I mean, it's not like they have ballads. So I want it. Let me just jump in yeah, really sure. quickly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that most people listening to this know who they are, but yeah. if they don't, really quickly, Agnostic Front is the band that put New York hardcore on the map back in the mid 80s that really like laid the template for so much of what we think of as hardcore now. Very, very, very important band, right up there with Black Flag or any other band or the Misfits or any other band that you could think of. So just for anybody who's listening that may not be familiar with them, and then Roger and Vinny are, I don't know if they were both, they weren't, weren't founding members, but kind of the... Vinny was, Roger was not. But they're they're the the definitive yes. kind of yes. backbone of the Correct. band. Correct, yes. Even though they look at all the members throughout the years is uh, what you know, helped them move along in so many ways. They, they have a lot of respect for their past members in, in a really unique way as well. Let me tell you what I thought was so interesting about the movie is I went into it expecting a discography movie and I'll always watch those just because I feel like I should, you know, I'll, I'll like, why not? I'll buy any book about like hardcore watching any of these movies. And usually I'm like, eh, whatever. So that's what I was expecting. But then when I realized it's what you were talking about, which is a character driven 
story, that is when like the switch flipped for me. And I was like, this is awesome. This is exactly what it should be. Thank you. And I, I didn't want to make a film that was a discography film, or it was something that could be done by anybody that wanted to make a film about agnostic front. And I wanted to do something that was a had my sensibilities and B was me doing it because I do have a relationship with the band. I have known the guys for a long time and I wanted to show the world the side of them that I really know. And that's not the side they often show when they're doing interviews or, um, you know, on stage, I mean, to a point, but Roger's not up there talking about being an abused child, you know, or it was totally, I mean, I've been listening to agnostic front for well over like 20, 20, like probably almost 30 years. It's horrifying to say <laughs> so I've been listening to the band for about 30 years and I had never had any inkling of that side of Roger. No one did. So many people did. Everybody knew that there was a, a, a part of it. Um, the Roger had some trauma. But, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Vinny and him have been best friends for almost 40 years. And Vinny didn't know about some of the stuff that happened to Roger until this movie. And I know that for a fact because I, Vinny looked at me and was like, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah. I, Vinny, he's like, I said, you didn't know this. And he said, Roger never wanted to talk about it. Which is understandable. I mean, who would? It's understandable. I mean, who would? But I, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it, Roger, I, I don't, I'm not a therapist by any means, but I think, you know, when you, when you go into making a, a film or you have an idea of making a really uh, emotional or character driven portrait, you know, I really like to get to know the subjects in a lot of ways. But with this case, I already knew Roger, but I had never talked to him in this way. We had had conversations. But we never sat down and had like, really insane conversations. Like some of the stuff that we talked about, I just, I, I can't believe happened to that man. And I, I mean, I put the tame version in the film, to be honest with you. It's not even the, the, the full version of what happened to him as a child. And it's just, it's horrific, but it explains everything. And it really gives a good backbone to why he went the direction he did. And I think a lot of people, when getting into this type of music, um, especially not so much the music, but really the scene. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of, I mean, I think when you join, you know, or I say join, like it's a club, you have to like get a membership card <laughs> or something. No, it's not what I mean. But, but, when the committee <laughs> approves your application. Yeah, I know, right? It, it, everybody's looking for a community. Everybody wants to be part of something. Just this one happens to be cooler than all other groups, you know? So it's like, it's, it's you know, everybody wants to be part of a community or a, or a um, you know, a, a thing. And this one happens to have a lot of people that, you know, have sometimes been, you know, beaten down by life in a lot of ways. And like I always tell people, you don't get into bands called hate breed or terror or blood for blood because you're a happy, normal person. Nope. I've always said that you, no, something happened to you or you were looking for something. And if you stayed in it is what we call lifers is that you found it. I, it's funny. Like last night I was at a, a fundraiser for a friend of mine who has cancer and you know, he's a pretty prominent member in the scene and, and especially Boston. And, and, you know, we saw, it was just, it, my wife and I went and, and, and we just saw friends that we've, you know, have, we've seen throughout the years, but it was really nice to see people that, you know, we, we essentially grew up together, you know, in our early, you know, late teens, early twenties. And now, you know, we're fairly good amount older, but the thing is we're, we're still all friends and everybody's really interested in what each other's doing. And there's a community. I think a lot of people in society 
don't have a community. So I mean, they talk about it all the time in mainstream media today is like there's a, a lack of people having a sense of belonging to a community or a group and they feel lost. I mean, hardcore has plenty of shortcomings, but absolutely. But it is definitely the community is definitely a real thing. There's people that I've known for 25 years now that are basically family to me because of hardcore. Yep. And that's that's real. And there's some real good people and there's some very fucking bad people. <laughs> I'm not going to candy coat it like there's you just got to learn to kind of navigate through and 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 figure out who you know who the good ones are well let's uh switch gears or i guess move on sure. to the next step so you realize that you had this kind of unique portal into the world of agnostic front you could tell the story of this iconic band in a way that nobody else could and you had the chops to you know pull it off because of your background in film when did you decide you know what i want to make a feature film out of this and like how did you especially given like you said it's such a tough story in a lot of ways how did you go about talking to roger and Vinny about it i actually we've been talking about it for many years but um no one would give me money to make the movie i tried everyone i tried every label i knew every a and r rep every business no one thought it was gonna do well because everybody was basing it on like album sales or whatever i don't know but I kind of surprised by nobody that, would do it. Also not. I guess. You'd be surprised on the people that turned me down too, but I'm not going to throw them under the bus here. Um, they, they, a lot of people turned me down. I'm mean, every single person I asked, um, just like, nah, that's not going to do well. I don't know. I just can't really, you know, put money up for that. I don't know. You know, are you able to disclose what the budget was or roughly any kind of perspective? That's a, that's a whole nother topic because it bleeds into something I'm actually going to talk about in a little bit. Okay. But you know, it, put it this way. It, it was not a, um, handy cam or edited in a bedroom on a laptop. This movie, sure. this took um, real people in, this is their profession. My DP, all he does is shoot commercials and and uh, documentary, you know, and we, you know, it was real money to put this thing together. Um, but I, I think that, you know, to going back to what you said is like, you know, why I did this, it's, it's also is because I wanted to leave the door open for the guys to be able to have a band film someday, like something, a discography film if they wanted to, because fans would buy that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the thing that pushed me over was a conversation I was having with my wife one night, and it was really late at night, and we were sitting talking, and, and I was really, I just, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I want, I really want to do it, but I don't know if it's a good idea. Uh, it's gonna be you know really hard, and my wife just looked at me, she's like, you need to do this, just do it. She goes, if you don't do it, you're going to be angry at yourself when someone else does. And I said, yeah, you're right. So that's when I decided to start sinking my own money into it and uh, started shooting. And then after we started shooting, um, and I, I thought that it was looking good and I had something I wasn't like, wasn't, you know, uh, going down a bad path um, in, in actually not being able to make it or getting good good content, I decided to do a Kickstarter and kind of release it to the world. And I just dropped it one day. I would just said, yep, I'm doing it. Hey, everybody doing a Kickstarter, help me out. And it was just exploded. It was pretty unbelievable. And how much did you raise from that? There I raised about 40,000. Okay. But that's not, that's not even close no. to covering the cost no, no, of this that, thing, right? No, that's a drop in a bucket. Yeah. That's like maybe a trailer and a couple of scenes you can use to shop it around or something. That covered basically, um, well, this is the thing. 40,000 is not what we got. 40,000 is. What oh, right. Yeah. 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 You got 25 or something. Yeah. It was about 25 when it came down to because of shipping and because of Kickstarter's fee and all this stuff. So that's, 
I mean, I am eternally grateful to those people. Like I, they have a special place in my heart forever for, for believing and seeing what I saw and wanting to stand behind it. Um, those Kickstarter backers, but honestly, the, the real help came in after the movie was, was just about done because it was really hard making it uh, financially. Um, I was sinking in money left and right. Any, any, I would do a commercial and I would pull money out and put it towards the movie. I would, it was coming out of my own paycheck at times. Um, which, you know, is, is tough to do when you're self-employed and you have two kids, you know? So it, it was a very, very hard, rough road to do it. And then at the tail end, we found all this really amazing footage, um, from NBC and, um, NBC is, is all their archives are run by universal. They are not a cheap place to buy stock footage from in any way, shape or form. Um, they don't care who you are. Uh, you're going to, you're going to pay if you want to use their material. And we found that in the film, there's all that really unbelievable color footage of a seven and. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that footage in there, um, that was not, not cheap to get. I mean, that is the best footage I've ever seen yeah. of that era of New York hardcore. Right. It's, 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 it's remarkable. And I managed to get a hold of all of it. This is from like what? 82 or so. It's actually, it's 83. And it's uh, Roger's first show. It's his first or second show, actually. Uh, it's not his, actually. He's he thinks it's his second show. I think it's his second show. Someone else thought it was his first. It's up in the air. It's it's even. I, I can't tell. We're not hundred percent. But if you watch it, the amazing thing is John Watson, the original singer from Agnostic Front, sings a song on it. Um, and the thing is, the whole night, all that footage. Murph. It's a Murphy's Law set. There's a Kraut set. And there's a one other set. Oh, it's AF, and then in Harley Flanagan is playing drums for Murphy's Law. Jimmy's. So it's this incredible footage that you're like, dude, this movie is not complete without it. These guys are going to make me pay out the nose. How do you go about the process? Like, if somebody was in that similar situation, like, what do what do you do of like negotiating this deal? You go to well, what I needed to do, I knew the price was going to be, but I had to go to. Um, I went. Now, how did you know that price? Just because you've done things like no, this because they gave me one, um, and they're not the only one. There was a lot of stock footage that I bought. It wasn't just MBSA. I'm sorry if I'm asking yeah, stupid no, questions. No, no, no. I at just all. want to explain all this for everyone. So, absolutely. Who do you call if you want to license this stuff from Universal? You basically there's an Universal Archives. You can license from them. Um, they have tons of footage. All these places that do stock footage, you know, they they often they own it, right? Or they've acquired it, or they shot it. In this case. It was filmed by, I think, w, I want to say WBC4, like New York. It's like New York local news. Yeah, right yeah, there. yeah. They sent a film crew down to go investigate this new thing called slam dancing. And it just happened to be the day that, like, the the New York hardcore scene was all doing the show. And it was like, like the, the heavy hitters of, of the scene. And A7 is this legendary as a squat, right? Yes. It, A7 was like the birthplace of New York hardcore is what uh, everybody refers to it as. It, is, it was like, it was, it was, there was CBs, there was a Peppermint Lounge, there was all these different clubs before my time per se. I, I can't, I can't say that I was there, but I probably have seen every single photo ever taken of these places. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I feel like Chicago's. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. 
Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. So if you locate this footage Correct. and they, there's just a, a phone number to call or an email or like, what exactly do you do? No, um, it's like, basically you can, you just search it online. You look up for archives of different departments. There's a lot of stock houses out there, not, and not just this one, say NBC, there's a million of them. And there's a lot of different ones. Like one's called historic films. Another one is called, I use was called film supply. They all have this and you, you basically call up or email and they set you up with, if it's a big place, it's like someone that's um, assigned to that account and they have multiple accounts that they oversee. And then you basically have to tell them what you're using it for. What's the film? Give a description of it, um, where it's going, what you're licensing it for, all these things. And then they- And you can't lie to you them cannot lie, because no. then they'll sue you. No, more than sue. It's worse than suing. <laughs> it's actually, um, they just take the footage back and then they revoke the license. So if they revoke the license and you say have your film on iTunes or say up on a major platform, it comes down. And that is not good <laughs> for anybody. So you got to be honest with yeah. them. You can't you can't lie to get it. Right. And price. and you'd be surprised like a lot of it doesn't it doesn't it's not a good idea to lie to them, period. You got to tell them what you're doing, what you're using it for. And nine times out of 10, these places are, make their money off of big studios or big, big production companies or big corporate companies that 
don't even care. They just ask the price and they pay it. So it's Microsoft. It's going to be 120 yeah. grand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Like, you know, whatever it may be, any company, they just, I, I know because I'm, I do commercial work all the time and I, I see these conversations on how they negotiate. Like it's, and they're not going to give Ian a deal. They don't give a fuck. Some, you'd be surprised. Some of them did. And, 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 you know, I was honest and I said, look, I'm, I'm doing a passion project. And, and, you know, they say, where is it going to go? I said, I don't know. Well, where are you doing with it? I'm going to try to do film festivals. Okay, that's a good start. So a lot of things, a lot of times people don't understand how this stuff works. So Oh, you can get a film festival license, right? Yeah. So the, the process goes like this. People say somebody wants to make a movie, right? A documentary. Um, and they want to they get it out there and they want to they shoot it. They want to edit it. And then they're going to go out and try to get it out there and try to get their money back that they put into it and sell it. So you have the process of making the movie, but then you get to the stage where you have to negotiate the licenses of archival footage that like I just talked about. And they have different tiers. So the first thing I bought was a film festival uh, license. So that allowed me to go and do film festivals all over the world for one year and unlimited. So I could do as many as I wanted, but I couldn't screen the film outside of film festivals and profit from it. The second I did that, that works twofold against you. Because once you do that, the film is then officially called out. It's like the film has been released and it bars you from being in a lot of film festivals. But the other thing is that it's another part of the license that's another fee. So when you buy a license for, say, archival footage, when they ask you where it's going to go and say you do know or you want to buy it all and just get it done, you say, you know, I want film festival rights. I want uh, all media, which is like broadcast, DVD, SVOD. TVOD, all these different like platform levels, um, which is, I think you probably know, like TVOD, anybody doesn't know, is transactional video on demand, and SVOD is streaming video on demand. And streaming video is like Netflix or like Showtime, and TVOD, transactional, is anywhere you're going to do a transaction. So it's like uh, renting or buying a film from, say, Vudu, iTunes, Google, Amazon, all those places. And then you pay, so you, you pay them for all media. And then the last stage is theatrical. And I, so what I did is I did the film festival rights. I paid that fee. And then it, to get the all media was a very big number. And it was very, I could, I could not even come up with that money. It would take me a long time to come up with that money. So I, I assume well into six it figures. It was a lot of money. Let's put it that way. I don't even like okay. saying it out loud. But I, I'm sorry to keep uh, it's okay. pressing you for, for numbers. You're not going to get it out of me. It's a lot. Yeah. So it's a lot. So um, because a lot of time people, when they have numbers of thing, they compare in value. And and that's it. Yep. So um, so I came to the stage where I I, I I submitted to one film festival. I actually, I'm saying the back. I said to, to the first time I submitted, the first submission was one, and then like the next day I did like another seven. So I I did seven film festivals, and they were like, you know, it was like five hundred dollars. I said, okay, I'm going to try to do this. The film's done, but then I kind of realized I was like, man, you know, what? I don't have any of these licenses yet. I don't have a. At this point, I hadn't bought the the uh, film festival license, so. I said, oh, well, you know, I'll see if I even get any festivals and go from there. Well, I got into the one film festival I really wanted to get into, which was Doc NYC. And it's a, put on by Showtime, Amazon, Discovery, and History Channel. And it's in, uh, it's in New York City. Um, it's very prestigious documentary film festival. And it was in New York City. Um, perfect place to do a free you know, screening for, you know, AF fans. And... Um, I got the word and I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? Once the kind of uh, excitement wore off that I got in, I said, man, wait a second. I can't get in. I need, I don't have the license to get in, to actually screen it. Can't get in because you can't actually 
play the yeah. movie without a license right. that you did not yet have. Correct. That is an astronomical number. Yes. And then literally the next night, I got a phone call from um, a really close friend of mine, Al Barr from the Dropkick Murphys. And he was on tour and he kept on begging me to see the movie. And I, I said, you know what? I got it up on a link. I'll send it to you. You can watch it. And he's like, you know, what are you doing with it? And I said, I don't know, man. I, I don't know what's happening with it. I'm just going to try to put it out. I don't know. I just some some problems with it. And I said, just watch the movie and check it out whatever. We'll talk about it later. And um, he, Al's just a friend. I would never ask Al for money um, or any of those guys in the band. Al called me back two hours later, bugging out. And he said, this is unbelievable. It has to get this thing out. It's really, it's not, not a matter of you wanting to get this. You have to get this out. This is important film to put out for our scene. And was this a final cut or? Yes, it was a final cut. Okay. So it's, it's done. It's in the can. Yeah, it's done, but I don't have the license. So I tell Al what's going on. I said, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't have the money. I'm going to figure it out, but it's going to take me a while. He goes, you know what? I'll carry it back. This is like 1130 at night. He calls me back like about an hour later and he says, you're all set. I said, what do you mean all set? He goes, I got a guy. What do you mean you got a guy? I got a guy that's going to help you out. You got to call him tomorrow. I said, he's going to give you the money. I said, what? <laughs> no, he's not. He said, yeah, he's going to give you the money. It's all taken care of you. You just got to, he's got to talk to you. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I thought it was kind of a joke. And, um, I humored Al and the next day I've known Al for a long, long time. And, um, Sometimes I take what he says once around the years with, a, you know, not exactly what he says, you know, and, and so maybe a little bit embellished. Got it. So sometimes I love him to death. He's, I look at him as like my older brother in a lot of ways. You know, the next, next day I, I called the guy and he said, I'd love to meet with you. I think your film's great. Um, I've seen part of it. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I'd like to learn more. So I met him in an airport while he was in transit. Um, and uh, we had breakfast you know, like about a week later and he said, I'm in and he, he, he Save the movie. So this person's role would be what? Like executive producer? Or? Yep. He's executive producer. And then he basically um, took. That generally means the person who writes the big checks, right? Yes. Yeah. It's the person that, that kind of writes the check or, uh, you know, make, gets the deal done or, you know, sometimes it's his, you know, the executive producer's concept of putting the whole project together and they piece the thing together with directors, producers, whatever it may be. Like Chris Jenner is the executive producer of Keeping Up with the Kardashians because mm -hmm. she's the brains of the operation Correct. makes all the deals happen. Correct. Yeah. And so he, he, he came on board, which is just me. So we did the, the film festival and then, um, then it just started come. Other people started coming on board as, as, uh, producers in, in different, different places that really liked the movie, like the producer from uh, Apollo 11, his name's Evan Krauss. Uh, he came on board and then Skip Williamson from, uh, who owns Revolver Magazine and Lakeshore Records, he came on. Um, so I had a really great team of people to, to bring this thing to the next level. But it was out of the kindness of his heart and liking the film and loving the culture and liking Roger and Vinny that, that Scott agreed to basically help this movie. And it and it and this goes full circle from what we were talking about in the beginning with people along the way from our scene doing good things. You know, there's you know, Al Barr and I have been friends for, you know, 20 something years, his band, the his first band, the bruisers took my band blood for blood on our first European tour for two and a half months. And, you know, Al paid my rent while I was gone that month because I was living in a walk-in closet. I had no money. And, you know, years later, you know, we've been friends and, and he came in, he's like, no, I love Roger and Vinny and I love the scene and I want to help. And I'm going to introduce you to this guy that's going to help. So it was really like just really interesting, cool thing. Cause there's people like that from what I said in the beginning of the conversation in places of power that are doing really cool things, you know? Well, there's a whole bunch of things I want to talk sure. about there. Um, 
I guess the first one I would say, and feel free to, you know, agree, disagree, comment on this, but there's the creative side of things, which of course is the fun part that has its challenges too. But the stuff you're talking about, like licenses, well, nobody wants to deal with that shit, but the show can't go on unless you do. So how much, you know, when you're doing a project like this, how much of it is creative and how much of it is dealing with, you know, the logistical or administrative or financial parts like that? It comes in stages. It comes in different stages as you go. And if you can't do everything in on a project like this, like pretty good, I don't think you're going to find out what you're really good at. Do you know what I mean? Especially, I mean, this wasn't my first project. So like I knew that I knew I was good at, at directing and editing and ultimately producing a film like this, uh, but there was nobody else doing it because there was no money and there was nobody else to pay or to get incentive to help me out other than, you know, them just having their name on it or wanting to be part of a cool project. So it's, it's very difficult to, to do that and put something like that together. So, you know, I, I that's what I was saying earlier is like, I had to put so much money of my own money into this thing that it was very difficult to pull off. And when you're, I don't know if it was the case for these particular people, but in general, when you get money from investors, which is what these people are, mm -hmm. it's not free money. No. There's, you know, expectations on their end, mm -hmm. sometimes which may, you know, one investor may want X and another investor wants Y. Can you talk about kind of the, the, the expectations that come along with money and how you kind of navigate that along with the creative part? Everyone is different. Every, every person that's, that's, you know, is putting something in, either they want something back that's, you know, of value and, and, or, or it is money period there. So there is expectations from everybody. It might just be a credit. It might be a role and it's really good to get that done. So before you take, they're like, Hey, uh, Ian, I'd love to give you a hundred thousand dollars for this. And then what would you, what'd be the next question you would ask? I would like, well, let's go out and dinner and let's, let's hang out for a little bit. Like, uh, cause I am not just going to take money from anybody because well, I don't, I don't want to hang out. I just want to give you a check. Oh, I'm not interested then. I'm, I'm like, I, I am, I don't necessarily, well, tell, what, what kind of things would you be talking about when we went out to dinner? Well, I would say like, you know, if we're going to be doing, a, a, are you passionate about the project? Do you, do you want to, are you just looking to make money or are you looking to, to be part of something cool or bigger or do, you know, influence someone? Like, what are your reasonings for being part of this? And those are like my first questions is what are your reasons? Why do you want to be part of this? And it's all, it's a, it's a thing where you're, you're kind of checking them out at the same time they're checking you out, you know, because they're, I don't want to work with people that I don't like. I have the ability to work with people. I do like, I mean, you're going to work with people you don't like always in your life at some way, at some point. But if I'm doing a film, that's my movie and I'm going to pick people to be around me that I enjoy being around, or I can, if I, if I don't necessarily love being around them, I have to be able to trust them to know that they're going to put this project ahead of everything else and whatever else that might inhibit it being a good job. Do you know what I mean? Well, I guess where I'm headed with that is, is there a time where it's better to say no, even when you really, really need and want the money because this person's like goals maybe may not be aligned with yours or should you always take it and just make the most of it? What are your thoughts? I turned down two investors for this movie early on um, because one group, I, I, I liked the people. I thought they were great, but they wanted too much control over the final edit. 
and it's I'm not interested. I was not interested in that. I would on other movies and whatnot, but this one was different. So I I would take money from investors, uh, you know. But it's it's one of those things where I, you know, you, you don't just take it from anybody. I mean, I can I can give you an example of like how you know you just go along with somebody that you trust, and it can really backfire when you do something in the industry like this. I mean, it just happened to me. I mean, did I don't know if anybody you know if you saw, but. I just did a, a, a big interview for Forbes magazine. Did you see it? Yes, but why don't you summarize it? Well, basically, I did the interview, but in the interview, I talk about what just happened to me. And when you do a film, whether you're a independent filmmaker or, or and you want to get your film up on one of these platforms like Google, Amazon, Netflix, iTunes, the transactional video on demand, or even Netflix and these other places, if you don't have a way to get to them directly, there's these companies called aggregators. They're kind of like the in-between between you, you know, your movie or your content and the platform. And their job is to package your film or movie or content in a way that that platform literally can just grab it and plug it in. So they're kind of like a quality control place. The big platforms will only work with aggregators. And there's only five that are approved for the whole world. Now there's four. So if you want to get your shit on iTunes, yep. you have to go through one of these five companies. Mm -hmm. There's like five or six. I mean, there's a bunch, but there's only five or six that are like approved. But what I'm about to say is just shaking up the whole industry. So I was being basically, I would say hunted by Distriber. This company called Distriber, they're owned by a bigger parent company called Go Digital. And right when my film started doing a lot of film festivals and getting kind of a fair amount of buzz, they came knocking and they said, hey, their pitch was, we can get your film on these platforms. We charge a fee. We don't take a percentage of your sales. We package your film. We'll put it in, you know, different languages, subtitle it, get it ready, and we'll get it up. So they gave me a price of, a, it was about f like $15,000 um, to do this. I can talk about this because these people are really pieces of work. Um, I paid them. Uh, I got a discount, so it wasn't 15,000, it was a little bit less, but, um, regardless, that's what they, that's what they came with. And they were going to subtitle my film in seven languages. I wanted to film all over the world. And their whole thing was, is that they put the power back in the filmmaker's hands. You own your film, you collect the money for it. You don't have to go through a distributor where they take, you know, a huge percentage. And then the person that made it ends up getting the last amount of money in, in the whole, like, you know, pyramid or pie or whatever you want to call it. Um, so you give them 15 grand, yep. they do some services Correct. for you, like subtitle yep. it, they get it on the platforms and then you keep everything else is the pitch. Correct. And you pay them $100, $150 a year. And then they basically take your money and not only that they take your revenue, they, and they transfer it to your account because the platforms don't want to deal with independent filmmakers. So the money goes from iTunes to them, to you. Yep. Now, not just iTunes, Amazon, Google, Vudu, and iTunes is what I bought. Okay. Whoever, but it goes into their account yep. and then they take their cut and send it to Ian. Yep. And then six months, the first payment that you get is six months of sales. And then after that, it's quarterly. At least that's what they told me. So I released my film in May. I paid them, put it on Google, Amazon, Vudu, and iTunes. Um, it immediately in the first two weeks was a number, it was the number one um, iTunes music film in the world. It was the number three uh, documentary in the documentary category in Germany. And it just was doing amazing. Like really, it, got, it ended up, I had a banner on the main site 
of of Apple iTunes, which is it was up against enormous movies like I think Spider Man, I think Mary Poppins might have been one. And that stuff really moves the needle. Oh. Like when Apple features oh, you, dude. that does a lot. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> so it's like it was. It, you know, you sc- I'm, I'm on iTunes and I, I'm the banner scrolling. Then all of a sudden, there's Roger's chest, and it's like Godfather's a hardcore. I'm like, this is insane. So I was really feeling good. And then they told me, you know, six months, you'll get your first payment. So October comes and I go into my studio for a color session with my color artist. And I'm in there, get a phone call from an individual that told me that prepare myself and uh, distributor is, is uh, going bankrupt. And I said, well, shh. And this is before you ever got your first payout. I was to be paid on that Thursday or Friday. And it was a Monday for six months uh. of sales. So... I got the phone call. They and what I it wasn't from the company. Now this is the part where people need to go research this because it's fascinating. Anyone to read this, it's just insane. The LA Times did a bit of article on it. Variety did an article on it. Now Forbes just did one on it. Um, they they were not supposed to touch any of my money. Not only my money, over a thousand other filmmakers' money. So they had a eleven hundred film titles that they brought on in 2018. I might be- So this has gotta be like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars we're talking. It's a lot of money, dude. And no one knows the exact numbers when they do, they're not telling us. So they had 4,000 titles on their site. They not only, from what, uh, there's a there's a filmmaker that has a big social presence named uh, Alex Ferrari, and he has a film um, podcast called Indie Film Hustle. He's kind of like a, he's a really good guy, but he's like a, he's kind of like a, I don't want to call him a guru, but he's like one of those guys in the scene that really kind of tries to help filmmakers. He, he's got a lot of information. He interviews interesting people, but he also got ripped off by them. So he started a Facebook page called just protect yourself from distributor. And he attempted to bring all these filmmakers together for us to all to talk, to figure out what to do, because you know how we found out about this? No one was getting paid. Other filmmakers were not getting paid before I even found out. A couple of them went down to the facility in LA, knocked on the door and there was no one there. They closed up shop, left the building, didn't even tell anybody, and then shut down. Fuck. And they took, either they stole, mismanaged, or spent all of the money in, that was supposed to go to me as well as supposed to go to the other, you know, whatever it is, thousand filmmakers and then 4,000 titles. So you're shit out of luck. I mean, there's bankruptcy court and stuff, but. Oh, dude, no, I lost that everything. That takes years. And you're never going to get anything, even if you did win. I lost everything. I was told recently. Oh, I was told. God. I was told that. And this just happened a month ago, man, like a month and a half ago. Fuck. And so it's still. So if I'm getting a little angry here, I'm sorry. It's just, it's just, I'm still, it's an open wound and it still really pisses me off. Of course. But these bastards, like. I don't know how someone sleeps at night, especially off of independent filmmakers and independent musicians, how anybody could sleep at night and rip those people off. I don't get it because we're the ones that are making the content for the world and, and whatnot. And these, this corporate greed is insane. The, how, I, don't, I don't understand how a company can, can burn through that kind of money when you have less than 100 employees. And all you do is computer stuff. It's not like they have big machines and they're manufacturing. They're literally 100 people with literally, you can do what they do with laptops. Well, I don't know anything about it, but it definitely smells fishy to it me. It does, me too. Yeah, how do you go through all that money? I don't get it. Probably sitting in some fucking Caribbean bank account somewhere with some shady accounting practices, you know. 
I don't know. All I know is that if there is wrongdoing, these people need to be held accountable because it is not okay. Like what they, I slugged over this film for years and I, I know there's, there's filmmakers out there that are in way worse situations than me, you know, in, in, in what they, cause I mean, I heard a story the other day and I, I can't confirm if it's true or not, but I believe the filmmaker that told me, cause he said it's a friend of his, he said he, he mortgages house against this film. I believe it. I mean, that's what people do. And he lost everything. And he lost everything. And then there's a there's a filmmaker the other uh, the other day that posted a video of him talking about what happened to him, and um, he maxed out his credit cards. I mean, I've done that a couple times for this. But you know, you get you know kids right out of college that are like you know 19, 20, 21, and you have everybody in the film industry telling them just do it, do everything you can. They say this they're saying beg, borrow, and steal to get your film made. I just don't agree with it. I don't agree with you know putting your life, everything you have. And risking it that much i mean these kids some of these kids there's there's filmmakers that you know think about the kids that they come out of school and they have debt let alone now they have no chance of ever getting any money back from what they invested and they're going to have to pay what 23 percent interest on the credit card forever it's going to you know supersede like the amount of money that they would have paid just in interest alone in a matter of like a couple years so when you, when you, to bring it back to what you said earlier about having a creative mind and also a business mind, if you're making content, that word that we laugh about, you have to take the time to at least research how it, how it works so that you don't get screwed, you know? And well, fuck, man. I, I know my shit and I got screwed. So, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you've been around the block a few times and, you know, even you, I guess, didn't see this coming. Is, is there anything that, you know, if you could go back, you know, however long ago it was, a year or two ago, how long, like, what advice would you give yourself? Like, were there any red flags or no. is this really something anybody could have gotten caught they, by? This, anybody could got caught by and a lot of people did. And there's a few filmmakers that are friends of mine did. It's, there's no, I thought it was okay because I didn't want them to take a percentage. I was like paying them a fee. That meant that they were not entitled to any of that money. So I thought it would like be in like an escrow account. You know, it just sits there. That's where I can't get my head wrapped around. I can't get my head wrapped around how they thought it was okay to, 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 to take from that account with all the money that, every, that was not theirs. It's like, isn't that a pyramid scheme? You keep borrowing to pay back and borrow and borrow and borrow. And you're just, in, in, in hindsight, going back and thinking about it, they, they were ruthless with the amount of emails and phone calls that I got from them. And in hindsight, I'm thinking now like, oh man, they knew they were going under and I would be a really good moneymaker. That's all I can think. But you're right. I bet they were like, look, let's get, we've got three months or whatever it is before this thing goes fucking belly up. Get every hot documentary you can on the platform before the music stops. Dude, it's just not documentaries either. It's not only documentaries. It's it's narrative, it's horror, it's, you would be blown away if you saw some of the titles. That's one of the things I don't wanna put other films out there, but you can find out. Sure. But there's, you would be blown away mm. to the, to the, even the distributors that got ripped off. It's, it's, it's one of the biggest things to happen in independent film, I think, since, I would say since the red camera came out. It's that big of a deal. Wow. Because so many people have been affected because, you got to understand the amount of platforms out there. This is the other thing I don't understand. And I might shoot myself in the foot here by saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. I, I believe that there needs to be oversight from these platforms. If they're going to make filmmakers do this 
and go through these aggregators, they have to say, we guarantee that they'll be fine or we'll back it. We just don't want to deal with it. I mean, do you agree? Oversight from who? Like the government? Well, okay. So, so say, so say um, Apple, right? Apple pay. Oh, I see what you Apple mean. gives the yeah. money and they say, you can't go through us. You have to go through this guy, right? You have to go through this guy. Well, yeah. I mean, if they're requiring you to jump through this hoop. Thank you. Like it, th that's what I don't understand. Either let us work with you directly or you're responsible for these. They're, they're essentially vouching for these distribution companies by forcing you to go through them. So either let us work with you directly or you're on the hook for this shit. Exactly. And the only one that stood up and said, this isn't right and we're going to make it right is Netflix. I don't have a deal with them. Oh, interesting. Netflix has come out and said they're going to pay uh, all these filmmakers. They, they have sent, from what I've read on this Facebook page, and you, you should actually go check this out too, because it actually could affect you as well in a lot of ways with, your, with everything you do. Um, not this company in particular, but other ones. Um, you know, they 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 have um, they have all this power and this responsibility. They should at least come on board and say we're going to watch it. Netflix has come and said we're going to pay all the money to these filmmakers that were didn't get their money that we paid distributor, and that's amazing. But none of the other platforms have said they'll do that yet. Well, shit, you know, I usually try to find a positive or something in any of these things. I well, there is. There's a positive. There's. I'll tell you this. There's, there's no positive in what they did, but there's a lot of things that, you know, I think it's legitimized the film in a lot of ways, in, in ways that I don't really want it to, but it did. I mean, what is punk rock? It's going against the system, right? It's always against, you know, corporate world, corporate greed, everything wrong with the world in, in whatever that person that's, that's spewing those lyrics or that band's message is. This this is this is almost poetic, man. It's like I'm I put the 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 I still get screwed. We still get screwed again. This is a film that I did that I had hoped that the whole hardcore punk rock world would embrace as not even if they didn't like Agnostic Front, but they liked the idea of what I had made as a representation of a culture that people were invested in. Yet I got screwed, and I got screwed royally. And, you know, I am usually very hesitant when people say they got screwed. I usually say, no, you didn't get screwed. You fucked up or you don't understand or something like that. In this case, you, you did get screwed along with everyone else whose money just went poof. Yes. But that being said, I sat in my studio and literally bawled my eyes out for a week, <laughs> you know, of what had happened to me. But I just I literally just said to myself, this is going to do no good. It's doing absolutely, I, I am done feeling sorry for myself and I just got to keep going. So what I did is I, I, I said, I have a, I have one person that I can trust, Chris Wren from Bridge Nine and Chris, Love him. he's, one of, he's a great dude. He's a good friend of mine. I've known Chris for 25 years and I'm like, he's going to, he, what do you think, Chris? And he was like, oh, I'll do it in a second, man. I was like, I'm down. So that's how it ended up on Bridge Nine. It ended up on Bridge Nine before this happened, but the, it was a long process to get it out. And then right before, you know, the film came out, this happened to me. So Chris sped things up to come out sooner to help me out, pushed for it really hard. And now it's gone out and Chris is, you know, pushing like crazy to sell the Blu-ray. It's doing really, really well. But the the thing is, that's the that positive is, you know, it's in some ways it's, it's made me kind of just like really focus on what I want to do next and, and how can I learn from this tragedy so it doesn't happen to me again. 
and I've met some some really amazing, really influential people have reached out to me and offered to help. Um, and it's just it's like made me feel like really, really good um, that you know, man, people are listening and people do care about injustices in the world and whatnot. It's you know, for somebody like me, I'm you know, I'm 42. Jesus, I've given up on humanity in a lot of ways. But you know, I have kids, and I, I won't let myself completely go in, in in giving up. But things like this, and, and people reach out and trying to help, and, and offering just their wisdom or just to talk, or how can I help? It kind of I don't know makes me have some faith in in people, and there are good people out there. It's not all bad. And uh, well, and you know, it, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning too, as far as hardcore as a community and a support system. When you needed to get this thing across the finish line. Al helped you out yep. when you got kicked in the balls by distributor, however you say it. Distributor. <laughs> yeah, distributor. You know, Chris Wren was there. You know, these people that you've known for decades that are, that's how you know a friend. Yep. You know, a real friend is when you get kicked in the balls by life or, you know, something shitty happens, they're there to pick you up. And, you know, I think that's happened to me more times than I could possibly count in hardcore people that aren't related to me. They don't owe me anything. But it's happened to me time and time again, and you know it sounds like this is a good example of that. It is. It, it, I think it is, and and it's um, I don't know. It's like uh, it's it's like having you know, faith in the core. I guess you know, <laughs> it's it's which it, I it's I it sounds so corny, and I feel like such a dipshit saying that stuff. But I me too. But it's just it's true because it's happened to me so many times that like, I it, I mean people from hardcore like maybe saved my life because I was in such a shitty place and they helped me out at the time that I needed it. Yeah, man. And like, like I, I, the thing is too, it's like, I don't necessarily like, I think I'll always have this community as part of my life in some way, shape or form and a lot of respect for it in a lot of ways. But you know, I don't want to just do punk rock films. I want to do movies about, you know, many different things and many different topics. And, um, but I, I did this film because everybody says when you do your film your first film or your first couple films do stuff you know and you know i've done a few films now and i've done stuff i i know and they've they've turned out pretty good and i'm i'm ready now to do some you know some other stuff and and some i want to stay in the music world and do some music stories i feel really comfortable in that area plus i have a, i think i have a relationship different rapport with maybe musicians so i think toby says it the most these days you know, from Tommy Morris from H2O is like, you know, PMA. It's like it, there is a, a having a positive mental attitude. It does affect your outlook on, on things. You, things will get you down. Um, and there will be, there will be tragedies that happen, but, um, it's not about what happens to you. It's about how you get it through it. I think, you know, and, um, I think that's the way to, to, to move through things in, in a way that you're going to come out on the other side. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good note to end things on to me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, what's the best thing people can do to support you? Go buy the Blu-ray on Bridge Nine? Yes, Blu-ray on Bridge Nine. And also, if they like digital, it is available on Vimeo On Demand right now. And and it's not on Amazon or iTunes or any of those other platforms right now? No, I, I took them down myself. Um, I demanded they were taken down. Got it. So if you want to watch it, if you want the physical media, look for Bridge Nine. If you want to watch it digitally, Vimeo On Demand is the way to go. Just go to uh, thegodfathersofhardcore.com. That's it right there. And everything you need is right there and you can get what you need. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I uh, hope that was informative for everyone else. And uh, man, best of luck with uh, with 
this shit uh, and whatever else you have coming up, uh, of course, you know where to find me. I'm always happy to help however I can. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everybody for uh, listening and supporting the film. Um, if you have along the way and if you haven't seen it, check it out. Hope you like it. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.